0: Turn your Bibles to 1st Samuel chapter 22. We read earlier Psalm 57, which is the parallel to David's experience that's described in 1st uh, Samuel chapter 22. But again, let me start by saying, mothers, we love you. We're thankful for you. And yes, we need Jesus every hour, but we need you every hour and then some. And we're thankful for the spiritual mothers in this church that have taught our souls to trust in Jesus. You know, Paul describes the church as a nursing mother that tenderly cares for her children. What a beautiful picture of what we're to be about as the church of jesus christ and though in our church we have men who are the spiritual ordained leaders women you are the soul shaping force in this church so we're thankful for you and what you do is model what we see david expressing his need for you teach us about refuge And how to find our refuge in God. And that God can be trusted. And that as we accept His plan and we wait on Him, we turn into something beautiful. We turn into people of praise. That's what we'll learn when we look, particularly in Psalm 57, that explains How David makes sense out of the internal and external turmoil that he is walking through in his life. How do you make sense out of the internal and external turmoil of life? Well, as the believer, we have the privilege to be drawn near to the heart of God in a cave, it's a cave of refuge. 1 Samuel chapter 22, just five verses. And David departed from there and escaped to the cave of Adullam. And when his brothers and all his father's house heard it, they went down there to him. And everyone who was in distress, everyone who was in debt, everyone who was bitter and discontent in soul, gathered to David. He became their captain over them. And there were with him about 400 men. And David went from there to Mizpah of Moab. And he said to the king of Moab, Please let my father and my mother stay with you until I know what God will do for me. And he left them with the king of Moab, and they stayed with him all the time that David was in the stronghold. Then the prophet Gad said to David, Do not remain in the stronghold. Depart and go into the land of Judah. So David departed and went into the forest of Herath. This is the word of God. Thanks be to you, O God. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, would you open our eyes that we might see the beauty of living in the shadow of your wings, the strong and safe shadow. And show us, Father, when we depart ourselves and escape to find rest and refuge anywhere than in your loving, supportive arms. If there's anyone here today, Father, that's living outside of the rest and protection and shadow of your wings... Would today be the day of salvation? Would you grant them faith in the gift of eternal life to believe that Jesus is the Savior and their Savior? Do this for all of us as we seek to understand more deeply how you meet us in times of trouble. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. There's really only two paths for living, or two paths of life. One is to create a path of life for yourself. The other path that we see David coming back to is you can either try to seek or create a path for yourself or you can discover a path that's been prepared for you. And that's really what the Christian life is. It's the discovery of the path that God has prepared for you. But if you'll notice in verse 5 and uh, verse 1, there's a word or a phrase that's repeated, and it's the key to understanding what's happening in David's life and what God will do in the cave for David. Verse 1 says that David departed and escaped Saul's attacks by entering into the cave of Adullam. That Phrase he departed is also bracketed at the end of this section, which is just five verses later. There it says that David departed the stronghold at the response of the direction of the prophet. David entered the cave because he was on the run. David left the cave because now, again, he was on the move. He'd been reminded of a different path of life, a different purpose, a different direction. No longer was he going to try to create safety and protection for himself. He was going to move out in faith to discover the life that God had prepared for him. That's the Christian life. The Christian life is that God comes to us in our caves of distress when through self-reliance and through selfishness and self-determination, we find ourselves at the end of ourselves. And we find this world lacking all the deep desires that our heart longs for. There's nothing in this world, and there's nothing we can do to find the life that we've been created for. So some point in your life, You'll find yourself in a cave if you'll ever find salvation, because you'll find yourself realizing there's no hope and there's no help in this world or in my heart unless there's a God who saves. Now, David knew this. Chapter 16, he was anointed. And we're told that he spoke of how God not only protected him against bears and lions, as he took care of she, God met him. And the Psalms are full of descriptions of how God had met David in these moments of darkness, in these moments of despair. But he's been on the run, and the context tells us that Saul has made it known throughout the kingdom. David is number one enemy of Israel. He's at the top of the most wanted list. And everyone can kill David. Saul has given permission of the kingdom. You will please me if you destroy David. He goes to the priest. And no, they're fearful. They won't touch him. He lies and schemes. And then he goes to the king of of um, the Philistines and Gath, he turns to his enemies, looking for refuge, with no help. Scholars tell us that this period, from chapter 19 to chapter 21, has probably been six years, and it's six years that have beaten David down, and he has no hope and help in himself, in Israel. In his scheming, and he escapes to the cave. Now, we're told that when he leaves this cave, it's not an escape. He had been on the run. He will leave on the move again. What changed in David's circumstances? What changed in David's life? Well, we'll see over the next several chapters. Nothing good changes for David. In fact, it becomes worse. The only thing that changes in David's life is his disposition and his perspective. He gains, again, a refreshed renewal of the vision that God has for his life, and he can move out in faith. He can move into the danger, not escaping from the danger. He can bring blessing, even we will see him bless Saul, even as Saul tries to kill him, sending signs and signals to all of Israel that God is a God who brings blessing and grace, not a God who demands to take blessing from others or even to take life. How did it happen? How do we know what happened? Well, we have Psalm 57. Psalm 57 tells us everything that was churning inside of David. But I want you to see the literary technique in these five verses so that you know that there's a reversal that takes place in David's heart. If you'll notice, I said that there's two parallel words, chapter 1 and chapter 5, use the word departed. And these are brackets of what Hebrew scholars called Narrative kai Now, I'm not going to nerd out on you uh, on Hebrew. Just stay with me for just a second. The narrator is giving us a clue that something takes place drastic. Juxtaposed reversal takes place inside that cave. Now, you can't see it, obviously, without the understanding of the technique. When you study a Hebrew narrative, you study the characters. We've studied Samuel. We've studied David, we've studied Saul, we've studied Jonathan. You study the episodes because the episodes teach us scenes in the overall meta-narrative. We study the dialogue, but you also use and look for literary techniques that the narrator uses. And Hebrew is full of literary techniques. This one's called a narrative chiism. It's a reversal juxtaposed between two repeated phrases that tells you this is what changed. So David departs and goes into the cave. David departs and moves out of the cave. Juxtaposed between verse 1 and verse 5 is verse 3. What he told the king of Moab. Look at that. David went from there to the capital, Mizpah of Moab. Why did David go to Moab? Well, we do know that his great-grandmother, Ruth, was a Moabite. Apparently, the relationship of the families had continued, and his parents are in danger as well. His brothers have come to the cave. They're in danger. These people who have joined him are probably in danger. They see that David can't protect himself, Saul's going to attack them, and they have Come to the cave. But this is what David says to the king of Moab. Please let my father and my mother stay with you. And here's the reversal. Until I know what God will do for me. Take care of my family. Until I know what God will do for me. David's heart has turned. His heart now is trusting in God as a refuge. And he views life this way. Not as circumstances that need to be escaped from. Not as frustration that needs to be let out. But as experiencing by faith what God has prepared for me. Do you view your life that way? Do you view your circumstances as an opportunity to discover what God has prepared for you. Most people don't live this way. This is the called life. They live driven lives. Driven and determined to secure their external circumstances to be more favorable. Driven and dis- determined. To manipulate by self-reliance or hard work. And then they find themselves empty and lonely and hurt and lost and in distress. And they either blame their friends or their circumstances. They blame God or they blame themselves. David's been touched by grace. He's been reminded that God is the giver of blessing. And inside that cave, listen what he says Until I know what God will do for me, I will live by faith. Notice what he didn't say. He didn't say, Until I know what I must do for God. He knew that it wasn't up to working harder, praying more. That's the legalistic approach or the religious approach. To Christianity. Notice that he also didn't say, until I know what God must do for me. That's the prosperity gospel, the self-indulgence demand that says, God, if you don't do what I want, I won't seek you. But also notice that he doesn't say, until I know what Saul will do to me. He doesn't have a man-centered view of of what's happening in his life. He says, until I know what God will do for me. And then refreshment poured over his soul. And then renewal filled his heart. And then faith moved him out of the cave to be a blessing to discover what God had for him. This reversal takes place in his perspective. I want you to see that. And the best way to see how he learns or is reminded to trust God is to look at Psalm 57. So if you turn back in your bulletin, I just want to highlight three things about how we strengthen our trust in God. And you see it in Psalm 57. First verse 1, he says, Have mercy on me, have mercy on me, my God. For I take refuge in you. I take refuge in the shadow of your wings until the disaster has passed. I cry out to God most high, to God who vindicates me. First, David says that trust grows when you accept a life of living under God's sovereignty. When you accept a life of living under God's sovereignty. When you accept his plan, that's an expression that you are trusting him. And he describes that in this way. He'd been living his life from the external to the internal and then to the eternal. But the reversal takes place. Now what we see is David says, no, 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 no. I'm to live first from the eternal then to the internal, and then to the external. Do you make that same mistake? All too often, your perspective is primarily shaped by the external, what's happening in your circumstances, or the internal, how you feel about what's happening in your life. And then what do you do? You draw conclusions. God doesn't love me. God's abandoned me. God, where are you when I need you? You'll find yourself in a cave of despair or discontent or in debt with nothing to offer, no resources, if you live your life from the external and the internal to the eternal. But David is trusting God and starts by accepting to live under God's sovereignty. Secondly, it involves waiting on God. Look at verse 7. My heart, O God, is steadfast. My heart is steadfast. I will sing and make music. Awake my soul. David doesn't say, I'm going to fix my circumstances and then I'm going to serve you. He says, I'm going to wait on you. My heart is steadfast. I will wait. Awake my soul. He recognizes the most important thing about you, is not your circumstances. It is not even your thinking or your feeling. It's your soul. And your soul is made to be near to God and to wait on God. And all too often, when you see barriers that are blocking you from what you want desperately, that's God's grace inviting your soul to awaken and to draw near to him. So trust it means accepting God's sovereignty it also means waiting on God's wisdom and then it means praising God for his love look at that last several verses awake harp and lyre i will awaken the dawn i will praise you lord among the nations i will sing of you among the peoples for great is your love reaching to the heavens your faithfulness reaches to the sky Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over the earth. David says, until I know what God will do for me, I will accept whatever comes my way. Until I know what God will do for me, I will wait to see his grace displayed. Until I know what God will do for me, I will praise him. That's what it means to trust in God. That's what it means to believe that God is your refuge. I spoke to a woman recently that shared with me, my everything I've ever cared for has been taken away from me. And she said, I have seen my family devastated, our finances, homes that we lived in at different times, everything that I've ever loved, Has been taken away from me. And she said. I started with this anger. To blame God. As I talked to my extended family. They just blamed me. She said. I thought. my alternatives. To living might be. The alternative to living might be. More bearable. Than facing. What my life was like. And then she came to a service. God touched her heart. She said, I still have questions. I don't know why all these things happen, but I know this. I'm experiencing real joy. I'm rediscovering the happiness of the little things in my life. I'm no longer fearful. I'm learning what it means to trust. You see, in those places, those caves of our lives, that's where God meets us and does the real important work of transformation. Archaeologists and, more recently, architects have described spaces as, uh, of transition as liminal spaces. You may have heard that phrase, liminal spaces. It was in, anthropologist, uh, archaeologist word, and then it became architects who used it at times. It it's simply means thresholds. It simply means portals, or transition points in your life. Caves are like that. Caves are liminal spaces. When you're somewhere between where you've been and where you're going, when you have the least control or knowledge Of what's coming next. When you feel the least safe and secure about what you're having to deal with. In those liminal spaces, those caves of life is where God does his most beautiful work. He changes us from driven people to called people. Or he reminds those that are called how to live as a called person. He changes our frustration into faith. We move from escaping to embracing. It happened to Elijah. Recall after Jezebel was chasing him, he ended up in a cave. It happened to Jonah after he rebelled against the Lord. God sent a cave in the form of a sea creature that swallowed Jonah. And in that darkness, he was reminded of God's grace. It happened to Jacob when Esau was on the move with an army and he was fearful for his life he couldn't turn any way to depart and god held on to him and changed him from self-reliance to dependence on god let me reflect for just a minute on caves in our lives first thank god for the caves in your life Many of us question God or we resent God for those caves. May have been a divorce, could have been a loss of a loved one, it might be a loss of a job, could be a transition of moving from one neighborhood or one house, might just be an estranged relationship with a family member. Thank God for those caves. Bring your pain and your fear and your doubt and your hurt into those dark places and give it to the Lord. Ask Him to heal you. Ask Him to meet you in that pain. I was reflecting back on the experience that we all have walked through together in this pandemic. And I was thinking about how dark and how fearful and how isolated, and how sad, and how unsettled we all were. We recognized just how little control we have of any of our circumstances. And we were wondered, we often wondered, am I safe? What's going to happen to me in the world? Well, I want you to know there's only two choices when you get to that place. Self-determination which will crush you or trust and reliance on God which will renew your soul. Thank God for the caves in your life. Secondly, I want to remind you that not all your pain and problems are about you. You may be carrying pain and burdens and problems, but it may not be about you. Don't be so self-absorbed into thinking that this difficulty was sent to you because God's trying to teach you something, God actually might be preparing you to help someone else. Those that were in debt and distress and discontentment came to David, and he became their captain. He had something to offer all of these hurting people because God had met him in a cave. So don't just assume that you're carrying something Because of something you need. It may be that God wants to do something for someone else through you. Think about all the Psalms that we have because of all the pain that David had to walk through. We have Psalm 34. We have Psalm 56. We have Psalm 142. We have this Psalm, Psalm 57. All written as David reflected how God met him when he was on the run from Saul. So also recognize that offering compassion to another person is an indicator that you've embraced God's compassion for you. David makes sure that his parents, who obviously would probably be targeted by Saul, he makes sure they're protected and hidden in a foreign country. Even as God had brought salvation from a foreign country, from Moab, through His great-grandmother. The third thing I would encourage you to reflect on is believe that you can handle everything that God puts on your plate. If God is not removing certain circumstances or difficulties in your life, that means that he has blessed you to carry that and to trust him as long as it stays in your life. You have to believe that He will carry you through that, and you can carry whatever it is that's burdening your heart. You might say, Mike, I have a guilty conscience. You might say, I have unchecked fear that pops up about my future. I have fear for my children. I can't make it go away. Well, you know what? You can carry that. How could you carry that? You can carry that because ultimately your guilt and your fear can never take away anything that's of value or importance in your soul. Your fear and your guilt can never take away your relationship with God. It can never take away His love for you. It can never take away your eternal place with Him in heaven. It can't rob you of your joy because that joy is that peace that passes all understanding. So you can carry whatever God places in your life. Lastly... Ask God for a cave of refuge in your life. Maybe that's a new friend. Maybe that's a prayer partner. Maybe that's a Bible study. I will say this. If you're attending this church or a member of this church and you're carrying heavy burdens by yourself, you tell a pastor, you tell a friend, you ask an elder to walk with you and to pray with you, you find a spiritual mother You do not carry these burdens in isolation or on your own. Now just a word about the communion table and why this is so meaningful in light of this sermon today. I think of the communion table as the place where we are reminded that God carries all of our hurts and our sadness. He removes it of its destructive power, and he uses it for healing in our life. I hope you believe that this morning. Last week we read Psalm 56, which was David on the run from Saul. And this is what David said in that Psalm You number all of my wanderings. Think about that. You number all of my wanderings. That could be tossings. So either the anxiety of the tossing and turning of sleepless nights or the wanderings and strayings from God's fortress of grace and hope, he numbers them. He knows every time and he knows what it takes to bring you back. But it also says, you keep my tears in a bottle. David wrote that On the run from Saul, he learned something about God. You keep my tears in a bottle. Every single one of those tears, Jesus will explain them. He will use them to heal you. In fact, when you prayed tears for the wrong things, Jesus was praying for your soul. When you didn't pray the tears you should have prayed, Jesus was praying those tears. Your wanderings, your tears, Jesus was healing your soul. Until I know what God will do for me, I will accept his plan. I will trust him. Until I know what God will do for me, I will wait on him. I will wait on his love to arrive. Until I know what God will do for me. For me, I will praise him. I will praise his name. I will praise his name to the nations. Let's pray together. Thank you, dear Jesus, for loving us so deeply. All the questions, all the concerns, all the uncertainty that we live in today. This table explains everything. He explains not only how you will refresh us and renew us and heal us, but how you'll heal the world. I ask, Father, that anyone here that's listening, that finds themselves in a cave, will not turn away from you, but will turn to you, for you are a refuge and our strength, a very present help in time of trouble. We turn to you in faith. And pray in Jesus' powerful name, amen.